0: Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 87. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com.
1: I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com.
0: And our very special guest is Pierre Wilhelm. He's the chairman of Regarding Capital Management. He has over 25 years of industry experience. He started out as a lecturer at the University of Pretoria and then joined the Reserve Bank as an economic analyst. He became a portfolio manager at Alan Gray Investment Council in 1991, and in 1995, he moved to Investec Investment Management, after which he founded RECM in 2003. This podcast was recorded on the 4th of February. So, Pete, it's great to have you on the show. So tell us a bit about yourself and how you got involved in the financial markets
2: yeah so so i started out studying well i actually to be honest i i actually wanted to become an actuary um when i was younger but then i found out i wasn't smart enough
1: so that's that's a that's a brave thing to acknowledge Pete, really if you is. don't mind me saying really is i mean my understanding not, not that I, not that i have any grasp of these concepts but my understanding is that actors are people for whom accountancy is just too exciting <sighs>
2: Yeah, <laughs> and, I, I, and I guess, and yeah, uh, so, so there's a lot of truth to that. In, in any case, uh, be that as it may, at, at some point, I uh, decided rather to go down the economics route um, and um, eventually became a lecturer, worked at the Reserve Bank in, in, in Pretoria here in South Africa. And then out of the blue, I got a phone call from a firm called Alan Gray to come and work for them on the fixed income on the bond side. Um, I had no idea who they were at that point, uh, but it you know, I always wanted to become involved in uh in fund management um, and uh, so i I joined them, moved down to Cape Town, joined them, and uh, got exposed to the world of fund management. Um, in those days, um value investing was almost in the ascendancy, it was on the rise. Um, and it made a lot of sense to me, uh, so I got uh, I got uh, inoculated, so to speak.
0: Who who actually did that? Was it just part of their yeah. philosophy, and you just got indoctrinated it, into it? Was there somebody who who said, Look. "No,
2: it was it was it was part of the firm's the firm had a very strong culture of value investing. So if you worked there, you either fitted in or you moved out. And I I, I stayed on and I fitted in, and uh, you know, and I started trying to find out more about it. And so anybody in the firm, the senior people I spoke to would, you know, they would uh, just speak the same story. Uh, and it made sense to me. Uh, but uh, I mean, in those days, there was a guy by the name of John Keitley who eventually moved to Australia, Karl um, Rossler, Alan Gray himself. Um, you know, so those sort of people were very influential.
1: And then from Alan Gray, things your career clearly developed and you're, you're now running your own show. Is that right? Your own firm?
2: After Alan Gray, I, I used to play Touch Rugby and there was a guy there by the name of Hendrik Toy, which you guys might know in London, who runs Investec Asset Management, soon to be called 91. Yeah. Uh, Four uh, <laughs> But uh, so, so we played Touch Rugby together and he uh, said I should join them. I joined Investic Asset Management where we were like 15 people. Uh, and that was quite interesting. And um, so I stayed there for about eight years. And uh, under Hendrik's uh, very good managerial uh, supervision, that firm grew rapidly. Um, and I learned a lot from, from being there. And, and then I got to the point where I said, well, I'd like to do my own thing. And that's when I started ReCM in 2003. So
0: that must have been quite a big step. You must have thought long and hard about it. I'm guessing. Or did you just rip the band-aid off and go for it? No, it
2: was a very hard decision. Remember, when you were working at that stage, investigate become investig asset management had become quite a big firm. And when you're a <clears throat> fund manager in a big firm like that, there's lots of people there that look after you. Yeah. So it's it's quite a in a in a sense, quite a cushy existence. And to then uh, you know, start up. On your own, uh, doing everything yourself—it's uh, it's quite a change, but it's something I felt that that's stage that I needed to do, and, and therefore I did.
0: It. Is that because you thought that you were seeing better opportunities on your own, and you couldn't express that at the company, or or what? What was that? What was the main reason? You just wanted to have your own firm, perhaps?
2: Yeah. So when you work in a firm like Investec, it's a, it's a broad church, um, but it is still a, a big organization, and there's certain things you. Have to do to toe the line, and I'm not very good at toeing the line, uh-huh. uh, and so I I felt that maybe I would be better suited to running my own
1: business. Brilliant is is that is that a polite way for saying you're basically a difficult bastard?
0: <laughs> <laughs> As me and Tim all, ourselves, <laughs> <laughs> I think some people have said
2: that about me. Some people have have said that about me, and um, I of course would I, I would differ. Uh, I would not agree with them, but uh, some people have said that.
1: Firstly, in terms of Alan Gray, Alan Gray is a firm I've heard of, but I, I couldn't say, I mean, by dint of personally having worked for a company with South African uh, ownership back in the early 2000s, a company called Henry Ansbacker in the UK, I, I heard of Alan Gray, but I, I couldn't tell you what I what, what it was, what what type of firm it was. It, does Alan Gray have a reputation for being a value manager? Very much so. Uh, you might have heard of Orbis Investments, yes. um, which, yes. is,
2: uh, which is his, um, a firm he started outside of South Africa, but... 40 40 years ago. Um, And and that's the sort of culture. Um, If you know
1: all this, then you know the culture. So from your perspective, I mean, because I I, I would describe myself as a value manager too, but value means different things to different people. So I think if you've got 10 value managers in a room, they'd give you 15 definitions of what value meant. Is that that right? Is that right? Really, Tim? That that surprised me. I... No, I think absolutely, because, so for example, just personally, I would describe the sort of the evolutionary journey of value as a strategy, if you like, if it could even be called one, because there's so many different sort of variations that there's sort of the Ben Graham value at one end of this sort of uh, uh line the cigar butt investing so stuff that li- literally being given away that's got one free puff of sort of value left to it and then all you've got you've got all these different shades all the way through to what i think would be fair you could fairly call modern Buffett, which is i would suggest closer to growth at a reasonable price type investing and then you've got all shades in between so you've got like turnaround stuff you've got special sits you've got deep value and then you've got the middle of that you know, view, and then you've got, then you've got the people who are, so for, to give you an idea, I was at a, a value conference, the London Value Investor Conference about five years ago, one of our uh, investor firms invite, happily invited me, you know, paid for a ticket so I could attend. And the the, the very first keynote speaker said, uh, he he, start, he opened up by saying, how many people here are uh, sort of Ben Graham value investors? Well, I stick my paw up and about one other person sticks hand up. So there's two of us in a room for about 500 people. And then he says, How many of you guys are franchise investors? And then the whole room, you know, every, every hand goes up. So there's all these people, you know, claiming to represent value in one form or another. But in reality, there's, there's multiple shades of gray in this. How, what, what's your, what would you define as value, Pete?
2: yeah so 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 for me value is very much deep value um mm. i would find myself on that spectrum um uh, i like to buy i like to buy um a pound for 20 pence you know yeah. at, at
0: the end of the day so, so uh, how that? so oh so how how do how would you find an opportunity what would um what process do you go through in in order to find a, a, an investment like that because of course everyone would want to do that but it's they're obviously not going to be as obvious to the, the masses, which is why it makes it, this game so interesting.
2: That's right, yeah. And um, so, so, so the way I go about doing it is I, I read a lot of what other value investors are writing
1: and what they're saying on podcasts and that sort of thing. And then you nick their best ideas. <laughs>
2: and I uh, nick their best ideas. I I'd put them in a <laughs> <there you go. laughs> No, but I, I think that is a that is a great source of idea. Of course, then yeah. you have to go back and and do your own work and, and try and understand why idea A or idea B is such a good idea. Um, I you know I don't think you blindly just implement somebody else's views, uh, but that's a great source of ideas. Um, I, I think reading uh, the newspapers, blogs, Twitter, you know, I look for rejection when there is broad rejection where there's consensus on uh something be a, being a very bad idea i i get attracted to that sort of thing
1: what's your opportunity set pete is it the your local market in south africa or africa or is it global
2: so so it is it, it is global at this point so we run a south african
1: value fund and we run a global fund but right now and sorry and sorry this is this is this is your your own company this my is- own company RECM, yes. RECM.
2: Uh, but right now, uh, there is tremendous value in South Africa. There's mm. huge value.
1: Yeah. Is that because Greta has basically made resources uh, a dirty word? Well, I think uh, and that,
2: that's something I'd like to touch on. You know, the anti Greta portfolio would probably, uh, the core of that portfolio would sit in South Africa. Yeah. And, and so, but apart from that, uh, just the whole political environment, uh, the mismanagement of the economy by the governing party, um, to the extent that we have like scheduled blackouts, mm. uh, there's massive negative sentiment here. Everybody wants to take the money out the country. Um, and it's uh, leaving a lot of uh, cheap uh, assets on the table. Uh, of course, you have to work off the assumption that in the end, uh, the country will work through this and come out okay on the other side now, I'm not sure that's 100% guaranteed. Um, so although there's lots of cheap assets here, would you put all your
1: money into it? I'm not sure that's right either. But, but for a value investor, there's rich there. And in terms of the value proposition, would you, so what interests me, so the, the way we're trying to practice this is we, we're trying not to be beholden to, let's say just purely sort of Ben Graham style metrics, which is like low P, low price to book, that kind of thing. But we're also looking for growth so in other words, we're not, we're, it's not enough just to be cheap. These, these things also have to be very profitable, um, ideally growing. And there's clearly a... Then ro- you're
2: entering into the, quality, into the quality side of things, which has yeah. become sort of the watchword these days for, you know, as long as a quality company, you can pay any price for it. Sort
1: of. Thing. Sure, so I'm not, so I'm not, I'm not advocating that, of, of course, but I'm just saying is that not, not all value stocks are automatically deep value. Some of these are perfectly... You know, decent, pro- highly profitable businesses that for whatever reason have been overlooked by the market such that their, their shares are cheap. So for example, we have got a, 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 we had a, a conversation with a client earlier who was, who was concerned about uh, coronavirus, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about. But it, it strikes me that what's happening there is there's, there's two things that are, that are important for any investor in the listed equity market. One is you want to know what the underlying operations of the company are and then clearly, you have to keep a weather eye on what the share price is doing. But at the end of the day, the share price, the company involved can't control the share price. They have a, a larger element of control over their underlying profits. So you, you, they're not the same thing. As over the long run, they're probably joined quite closely. But in the short run, they can get wildly disconnected.
2: Those those things should converge, and, and I think that's you're exactly right when you when you say that's what one should be looking out for is what's happening in the underlying business, and what price are you paying for that? Mm. And I think that's the key. Uh, for me, as a value investor, I want to identify a business that has it need not be growing, but at least it should be. Well, it's not collapsing. Uh, it's not collapsing exactly. Yeah. It's not collapsing. It's it's profitable. Uh, it might be going through tough times because of the cycle, because of all sorts of uh, exogenous influences. Uh, and then, if you can pay the right price for that, those assets or those cash flows, I think that's then you're on the right track. So, so what's happening in Mox today is people are paying a very high price for. Uh, And I think it was uh, Buffett that said this for a cheery consensus. So, you know, you buy Apple or or Facebook, um, everybody agrees that these are wonderful companies with a wonderful outlook and wonderful profit streams growing at a nice rate. Uh, I think there's a broad consensus around that. So it's hard for me to see where the the additional return comes from uh, by looking at those companies.
1: This I saw some uh, really intriguing research over the last few days by uh, an American firm called Dimensional Fund Advisors, wh- wh- who I'm sure you, you you'll be familiar with, um, and it was about basically this this big debate about value versus growth. And I sort once again insert that caveat that the, these terms are not fixed in stone. There's no scientific definition for what value is and what growth is. But basically, what they were saying is value has been spanked globally for the last ten years, and yet. What they were actually saying was although low values. So, so here are the stats from from their research. they their site. So they're they're looking exclusively at the U.S. market, and clearly the U.S. market has been a special case. It's been a itself has been an outlier. It's been a best performing market relative to probably all of the developed markets over the last decade. Um, and maybe that's partly because of its lead in technology. But whatever whatever the, the the answer is, the U.S. has been better. But they were saying that actually value hasn't been actually that different from its long-term performance. So, for example, the Russell 3000 value index over the last 10 years has annualized 11.4%. And the annualized... Decent, which is decent. Which is perfectly decent. Anyone would be happy with that, I think. And then the Russell 3000 value index since January 1979. So the the last 10 years was 11.4. The same index since January 1979 was 11.9. So we're, we're talking about more or less the same as its long run average. However, the Russell 3000 growth index over the last, well, I'll give you the 79 figures first. So since 1979, the Russell 3000 growth index has annualized 11.3, brackets less than value, close brackets. So 11.3 for growth. But what do we think growth has done for the last 10 years? I'll tell you anyway, but have a guess.
2: I, I would guess double double value.
1: Well, it's fourteen It's fourteen point seven percent. So on an annualized basis, that that three four percent differential really compounds over time. It does, but
2: it just shows you how we as value managers are experiencing this. That I would guess double. That's how it feels.
1: Oh, absolutely, because uh, this stuff is so out of favor. It's like it's like you need to go around ringing a bell, saying you know unclean, and waiting for people to scatter in front of you. So because they're so afraid, it get this story gets even better though. So. Um, I'll give you the stats, then we can sort of talk about that. So they then said, they then looked at the experience from 2000 to 2001. So the, and this is a slightly complex thing, but I hopefully express it fairly quickly. So they were looking at sort of growth uh, index and value indexes going, going back as at March 31st, 2000. So as of March 31st, 2000, the one-year, five-year, 10-year, and 15-year performance of growth hugely outperformed value. Okay, so in other words, that's the that's the nineties, that's the the big tech decade and the first dot com boom. By March the thirty first, two thousand and one, value owned all of those one year, five year, ten year, and fifteen year periods. Just a year later, so in other words, thus one year was able to shift the whole you know tilt from from growth back to value. So my question basically is. Where do you think we are you know assuming that history even does repeat itself, where do you think we are in the cycle now are we are we in a kind of march are we kind of a you know a post dot com boom market or is there is there do you think there's more room for further growth by growth
2: yeah so so the timing is always a difficult part of it and mm. i'd I'd probably um uh, reserve my judgment on exactly when this thing turns and how and what causes that turn. What I would say is that what's causing value underperformance and growth outperformance is the current low level of interest rates. If you're looking at the one factor that's driving this whole issue, it is interest rates being very low or negative uh, globally. Uh, so that what investors can do is they can take so-called quality companies, companies with stable or even growing cash flows and they can discount those cash flows back to present value uh using very low interest rates and they can also extrapolate those cash flows very far into the future because there's certainty around this cash
0: could could you put that into into layman's terms just because we we do have we do have professional listeners but we also have some who are just learning about value too and so it would really help to put that into into layman's terms
2: So basically what it it boils down to is there is this perceived sense of certainty and lack of volatility that this low interest rate environment has brought about. So people are comfortable looking at the good businesses and putting a very high value on them today because they're so comfortable with a long-term outlook for these businesses based on – low volatility, low interest rates. You know, everything's just going to stay the same for the next 10 to 20 years as it has been for the past 10 years. Because if you look at what's happened over the past 10 years, is despite all sorts of things globally, uh, you know, wars, elections, all sorts of things, um, things have just gundled along. Fun, uh, businesses have, the good businesses have just continued to grow their earnings uh, and they've done very well. Uh, and so with low interest rates, In other words, the opportunity cost of bringing up these cash flows is quite low. So you're quite comfortable with them. You are prepared to put a very high value on the business in today's terms. That's what it boils down to. And and I think that's what's driving this massive bifurcation between value stocks, which which are inherently more cyclical businesses uh, with cash flows, which are less stable, more volatile, um you know who needs that when you can buy a mcdonald's which just churns out the cash the earnings might not be growing very fast but you know they're going to be there this year next year the year thereafter you can buy pay a very high price for that certainty Uh, and people are comfortable to do that because they've been proven right for a decade now there's almost a generation of fund managers and advisors that have just done the easy thing and and advise their clients to buy more McDonald's, to buy more Facebook, to buy more Microsoft. And it's worked out very, very well. Uh, So why would you go around scratching in cyclical businesses or temporarily disadvantaged businesses when you can buy,
1: I don't know, McDonald's and it just continues to truck along? The stats I've seen on this would tend to suggest that it's not firstly we know that the us market's outperformed well, certainly the, US, the uk and europe and probably most well, most of the well, all all of the most most developed markets and most emerging markets but even within the us the degree of concentration i think is quite profound from, the, from what i've seen basically pretty much all of the growth of the s&p 500 has come from half a dozen stocks namely facebook uh, amazon uh, uh, apple microsoft google and netflix in other words, you could basically just get rid of the 494 other components in the S and P 500, just own those, and you would have had all of the market's return and then some. You know, there's there's no there's been no need to own anything except basically you know big tech, which is intriguing. But for for those people who are fans of history, this I, I'm not suggesting that you know history repeats, obviously, but it, it strongly suggests that these guys are the new Nifty Fifty.
2: Yeah, I mean, history doesn't repeat exactly, but it does rhyme. There's no doubt about that. Um, And what's happening today is very similar to what's happened in other bull markets. The market becomes narrower and narrower. And when Mm -hmm. I say narrower, it is being driven by fewer and fewer stocks. Mm -hmm. Today, I think in the S&P 500, five stocks make up over 20%
1: of it. And you may, I don't know if you've seen this, but this has certainly been prominent in the UK media, that... I think two two stocks. I think uh, it, it, I think it's Apple and maybe one other, and they account for like half the entire German stock market value. That's correct. Yes. Oh.
0: So just just to circle back, then you you said quite rightly that obviously if you'd invested in these companies and you expect interest rates to stay low, you've done very well. So what's the counter argument to that? Why would you look for value then? And I'm I'm well, playing devil's advocate yeah. here,
2: but. Of course, yeah. Uh, So, And that's a a question I get every day from our clients is, you know, why would this change? Why would we allocate money to you um, uh, as a value investor when we're doing perfectly fine investing in perfectly good companies, making very good returns from investing in these? Why would we want to invest in your junkie company? The response is very simple is you're only going to know when this trend ends after it's ended. Mm. Nobody's going to tell you beforehand. So if you want to run a sensible portfolio, don't allocate all your money to value managers because we don't know. We know over time value will do well again. It it will come back, but we're not sure. I I can't tell you whether it's going to be today, tomorrow, next week, next month. Mm. Um, So allocate a portion of assets to a value manager. Uh, And um, at least then, and you know, because that's what a portfolio is about at the end of the day. It it enables you to build a set of exposures to unknown future events because you can't predict what's gonna happen in the future. If you knew with, if you could do that, if you could do that, you would buy one stock or one asset. Mm -hmm. And that would be fine because you knew what was gonna happen and you would be exposed to that positive thing. But we say, we don't know what's gonna happen. All sorts of different things can happen. Let's build a portfolio which can react to different events. Uh, and I think the value is one of those things that most portfolios could do with.
0: So isn't part of this then to do with the amount of risk that you're taking, which is obviously something that you can't see from the return? So in other words, a value portfolio ah. may underperform, but actually there's more risk in this growth portfolio because it's there's no room for error. Whereas the value approach, like you, you, you mentioned deep value, and presumably some of the stocks that you're buying are out of favor, but also have net asset value greater than the share price. And therefore, I'm assuming you're 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 cushioned slightly, or, or at least you won't be shaken out of the position if there is a broad downturn, because you yep. know you've got a margin of safety to use the the value term and one that I've heard from Tim a few times. Would that, would that be fair?
2: That, that, I think that's, that's a fair description of, of, of what's happening. But of course, you, you need to realize that the man on the street or person on the street investor experiences risk as the change in the price of the asset. And if the price of the asset keeps on going up, that's a low-risk investment. You no. according to the actuaries,
1: mm. they will
2: tell you this is, a, this is a the standard deviation of returns of this investment is quite low. Therefore, it's a low risk investment.
1: Well, really? well the Titanic's oh. the Titanic's journey across the Atlantic was great until it finally sank.
2: Exactly, but that's my point. Yeah. Um, you know, if if you if you measure risk by price volatility then you are always going to be looking in the rearview mirror and you're going to be trying to steer by what you see there. And um, that's not a great strategy.
0: I guess as a value manager or as a money manager, you're, it depends on the outcomes that you're looking to achieve. So if you want to re- achieve a return, but also not lose money for your clients, depends what's more important. I've heard Tim say a few times about your your goals could be for someone who has a lot of money. They don't necessarily want to make ten percent a year, although they'd like to. They might just want to have surety that that money's going to be there. They don't want to draw down yes. twenty or thirty percent. So, so, so you you might for- want to forgo the, these big returns that you're seeing in growth because the, you're not identifying the risk that's involved with holding them and yeah. the the you know the the potential air pocket that they could hit. Um, and the size of the downdraft at a point that you know we we can't identify at the moment because it doesn't seem even you know bad news events the market seems to bounce back which shows that there's probably more upside to come but at some point there's going to be a big turnaround in these big stocks and it ain't going to be pretty
2: yeah so again um the stocks might not come down a lot those big stocks that' drawing they might not collapse, but they just might underperform for a long, they might go sideways for a long time, like their revenues have been doing for the past while. Yeah. You know, some of the stocks. So, but I do think that uh, that what you're describing here is fine in theory, but in practice, investors saying, hang on, you know, you guys say you, um, you know, you just protecting your capital. Then they look at 2019 and they look at our global fund, for instance, which did, I don't know, 10% roughly, and they look at the MSCI world, which did, I don't know, 19 to or 20%, and they say, you know, what's wrong? You know, can't you just do the index? And we're going to sell your fund, and we're going to buy the index. And a lot of that's also happening. So money is being taken away from active managers, um, positioned differently to the index, and is being allocated towards to, to the index, uh, which, uh, which again supports... Uh, the biggest stocks uh, and the so-called quality stocks. Uh, And that trend can carry on for a while until it stops, of course, as you point out. Uh, Now, how that stops, I don't know, but I I think maybe one, we don't like really, we don't like making macroeconomic forecasts, but I think if one looks at what's happening in the world today, one has to say that it's probably not sustainable. Uh, If you look at debt levels uh, in government finances worldwide, Um, it's pretty much out of control Uh, again driven by low interest rates because governments find it very cheap to finance themselves at you know for the US bond deals of 1.5% for 30 year money it's you know why not spend more why not do MMT Um, it's you know a year ago mmt was sort of almost a swear word amongst economists and it's becoming much more widely accepted that mmt is
1: probably not such a bad
0: thing so 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 just to just just to say mmt is modern monetary theory but i think that's magic money theory in my view or well,
1: magic magic money magic money tree theory <laughs> i mean I, I was shocked at the the money week conference in november i think it was last year money week's a magazine in the, uh, the uk that, that's popular with a lot of uh, private investors in fact, it's the, the best-selling financial magazine in the country. And they had a, a conference in London, say, in November. And I heard four, four people in a row that I very much respect. Um, James Ferguson, economist. Julian Tett from the FT. Well, I have time for Julian Tett, though I have less time for the FT. Um, Dan Hannon, who's an, an, a conservative MEP and a, and a Brexit champion. And then immediately after that came Russell Napier, who's an analyst that I, I particularly rate. All of these guys from, from, from memory all believe that MMT is, is going to be unleashed on the system. Now, I, the way I would define MMT to the layman is it means government will print money uh, without any uh, qualms whatsoever. And the, the, the concern I would have, and welcome your thoughts, but the concern I would have is, well, that's ultimately going to lead to hyperinflation as sure as night follows day because if there's no we already know that we're in a, a system that's unlinked unhinged by any kind of like hard monetary backing the way the dollar and other currencies were linked to gold until 71 so we've had a monetary system that's lasted for nearly all of my entire life but monetary systems change as my colleague killian continues to to point out to to me and to to clients monetary systems are not fixed in stone they evolve they change over time with politics and with you know the weather so uh, the idea that you can just have, well, let's just print money because it has never been a problem until now. In the words of the newsletter um, writer Grant Williams, hasn't, is not the same as won't. So just because we've had 10 years of this monetary insanity, doesn't believe that governments will be able to pull off this trick indefinitely.
2: Yeah, so so I think um, if you listen to what Russell Napier says, um, I think he agrees that MMT will happen eventually, but he does, mm. I think he does Expect uh, a bout of deflation before that even happens.
1: Correct, so that, and it, and it and it could it could even be that coronavirus, for example, is the bubble that sort of is sorry, is the pin that pricks the bubble.
2: It it could be it could be anyone any anything which we wouldn't be able to identify until we until after
1: until after the fact. Yeah, yeah
2: exactly, exactly. So so, uh, however that however it happens, I, I do think that it's becoming more and more widely accepted, even amongst quite rational plays in the financial markets, and also in governments, and even in unelected uh, uh, policy bodies, that MMT might not be such a bad thing. Uh, and as long as interest rates stay low or negative, it's not, you know, it, it it's sustainable. Of course, that thing ends at some point. Um, so, so just getting back to interest rates, uh, how sustainable our low or negative interest rates are. You know, I think that's the crux of the problem. And what you have today is a situation where there is no link between the money of today and the money of tomorrow. Because normally interest rates will give you that link. It's, that is the time value of money. So there's no incentive to save. Exactly. There's no incentive to save. Um, and because governments are, and have been for centuries, governments and profligate, they will spend as much as they can and justify it however they can. And and I think these low and negative interest rates give them a lot of ammunition to do so. And MMT is just another lever or tool they can use to justify their ways. And, and, I, think, and, and I think that's the fundamental problem that we're gonna face at some point that uh, if they create too much money, inflation will break out and interest rates will go up. But when does it happen? Uh, not tomorrow. I mean, maybe maybe
1: next week, but not tomorrow. So I'm I'm going to give you a really unfair. I'm going to throw a really unfair question at you. So let's assume, firstly, for the sake of argument, that there's just one global central bank. Call call it the Fed, but it's effectively all of the the central banks. And you're the person in charge of that of that central bank. Uh, tomorrow, you're parachuted in, probably against your will, perhaps I don't know. Uh, but anyway, you're parachuted in to act as the sort of the global um, Mark Clooney. To 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 direct the you know the, the the world's monetary affairs. What would you do to get us out of the dilemma that we, or the predicament that we're now in? <laughs> I know. I said it. I said it was an unfair question. So. Yeah.
0: So,
2: I am a believer in sound money. I, I I like the principle of sound money money that you can trust uh, that will be around tomorrow. So I would try and. Uh, Bolstered integrity of money, uh, and that's exactly the opposite of what's happening today. Uh, I think m- money uh, is being undermined.
1: Could could you could you do that within the context of the the, the banking system as as exists today? Because it should, would you not think that if you were to, to to try and pull off that trick, then the bankers, the J P Morgans and the Deutsche Banks and you know etc 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 would say well basically you would you would be mysteriously sort of taken out in a drive-by shooting it would it would simply it would not happen they wouldn't ne- they, they would not let it happen
2: yeah it's not gonna happen um that sort of thing will not happen uh, I, I think we continue along the path we're going now um and and that's the trend eh? and you can see globally the trend is towards towards trade barriers I think it's within the next five years, we will have more capital controls globally, mm. less free trade, uh, more government intervention in the form of MMT and other things. Uh, and all these things will, uh, I think, work to slow down growth even further because we've now had 10 years of low interest rates. Yes, economies are growing, but then you couldn't... Discuss- you couldn't call them buoyant. No, flourishing or buoyant. No, you yeah. couldn't do that. Uh, so. After ten years of really all hands to the pump, um, you know, of is just sort of just grinding ahead. Um, how long i that lost, uh, I, I'm not sure. All I know is that I think there are many, many assets that are being left by the wayside because of how people think and uh, or how, be, how they're being told to think. And I think those assets will do fine in some sort of in some sort of uh, uh, longer-term correct, corrective process. And they'll do fine because they've got strong cash flows. And that's what you need.
0: You're bullish on South Africa when you're saying other...
2: Well, other... I think, sorry sorry to interrupt you. I, I would not say I'm bullish. I would say there are lots of cheap assets here. Okay,
0: that sounds bullish. Think...
2: <laughs> the bigger picture is uh, not that rosy. I think the, the economy uh, is being mismanaged
0: completely. Yeah.
2: Uh, I think the politics is a mess, but I guess you can say that about many
0: other places as well. But isn't that just an opportunity? Because uh, politics is always a mess, um, you know, it, just it, virtually it, it everywhere. Is. So, but
2: it is—it is a mess. But uh, remember, in Africa, a mess looks different to a mess in the true, UK.
0: True. True. Yeah.
1: There's a there's a there's a great sorry to interrupt, Pete. There's a there's a great line from um, No Country for Old Men. I don't know if you've seen the film. Yeah, great film. Yes. And uh, there's there's basically been a, a a drug deal gone bad in a southern uh, American state, and uh, the the sheriff the sheriff sort of rides up to the scene and his deputy, and the deputy, and this is adapted from who's the author? Uh, Paul? Uh, I don't the, know the actually. book. I don't know. I I, I forget I forget the name. Of the- I've read I've read the book though. It's it's, ter- it's terrific. But it's basically uh the, the deputy says, uh, "Well, this this is a mess, ain't it, sheriff?" And the response is. Well, if it ain't a mess, it'll sure do till the mess gets here.
2: <laughs> well, we, we've got a mess here. Um, yeah. But if you, look at, uh, if you look at what's happened in Africa north of our borders, it, uh, it's not a pretty picture. Um, so, so although they're cheap assets here, the very negative outcome uh, is uh, the probability of that is not zero. Okay. So I think one has to be careful about how you allocate resources to an environment where, yes, there are cheap assets, but you know, I think the difference here between what we experience in Africa and what you have in other places, politics is a mess everywhere, yeah. and politicians steal. I mean, that's just how the system works. But here, they would steal until there's nothing left.
1: We call it wealth redistribution here. But but I, I don't mean redistribution into the politicians' pockets. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So so I think one just needs to be cautious of that. But having said that, I, I, I do think there's an opportunity here to to make money if things turn out okay. So um, would you
0: be would you be sort of sticking your toe in the water with some stock, or are you waiting for for an opportunity for it to go down further to make the risk reward look better, or are you looking at the the, the political situation to ease and then go in? What what would be your trigger?
2: Well, again, uh, I can't predict the future. No, I, none of us can. Major trouble with that. So, so but given that this is so cheap, here, yeah, in my South African equity fund which I run, I am eighty percent invested in South Africa. Of course, my mandate is to invest in South Africa. So, I've got twenty percent cash and eighty percent equity investments. Um, so I, I'm probably expecting a bit more negativity, but if it doesn't come, I own 80% of some very, very cheap assets. Uh, in our global fund, I have about 5% exposure to Africa, where in normal times, I probably have not.
1: To what extent, if any, does gold feature in, in either of your portfolios?
2: It, it does feature in both. Um, it definitely features in both. I, I think the system... Uh, as I tried to allude to earlier, I, I think trust levels are breaking down. Trust in mm. governments, trust in money, trust in all sorts of things. Uh, it seems to be, I, I get the feeling that things are breaking down. Um, and I think gold is the opposite of fiat money. Fiat money is something that people use because they trust it. It's got no intrinsic value. the only value it has is the trust that people place in it. And if that trust starts breaking down, well, then what's the opposite of that? And I think a tangible commodity like gold would be the opposite of that. Uh, If nobody trusts anybody, uh, you would trust gold. Uh, So, you know, as we move along that spectrum from a trust-based fiat money system uh, to that system's breaking down, I think one would increase your allocation
1: to gold. I'll let, I'll let Paul raise his, um, what I would suggest is perhaps predictable question about the, the merits of uh, cryptocurrencies. I
0: haven't had to say a word.
1: <laughs> <laughs> only our mother, only your, only your mothers can tell us apart. <laughs>
0: uh, you know,
2: I can't profess to be an expert on it, but I have done some reading up on blockchain technology and, and that sort of thing. And I think there could possibly be a place for that. I'm not sure how and when, but I think that one would probably be well-served to at least investigate it. And I've allocated a very small portion of the portfolio to firms that either mine Bitcoin or have exposed to Bitcoin mining or actually own Bitcoin. Um, and let's see where it goes. I mean, uh, if it goes to zero, like many people think it will, then, well, it's not really going to hurt the portfolio. But if it takes off, I think you're looking at multiples of current value. So let's see. It's For me, it's an option. Yes.
0: So you invest in companies that have an indirect exposure to it rather than just buying it outright?
2: Yeah, uh, currently in South Africa, at least uh, the regulatory environment doesn't allow you to buy Bitcoin outright in regulated funds. I, I can buy the equity in business like FRMO Corp, which is run by the guys at Horizon Kinetics, which you might be familiar with. They invest in Bitcoin mining equipment, Bitcoin miners, they own... Bitcoin funds, um, but again, a small portion of the business is exposed to that. So you can buy the equity of a company like that.
0: Right, I see. That
1: reminds me a little bit of this. Uh, I was talking about this with, with some clients last week. The, uh, I think I'm correct in this, and I'm sure listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, um, when, this, when this hits the web, that the around roughly 10 years ago, the Dutch Glassblowers Pension Fund got into hot water with the Dutch regulator because the the pension fund in question had a meaningful part of its portfolio in gold. And the regulator said, the Dutch regulator said, well, what's this high-risk commodity doing in your pension fund? Could you please replace it with Dutch state loans, Dutch government bonds? And the the Dutch Glasgow's pension fund basically told them to piss off. And it ended up in court. And to the best of my knowledge, the, the pension fund actually ended up winning the case against the regulator. In other words, they were able to maintain a degree of operational independence from, effectively from the government. I, um, I wonder, I mean, we're talking about the equity market. We tend to focus on, on, on equities in, you know, in these podcasts, but I think there's an altogether bigger problem brewing, and that bigger problem is uh, what are institutional pension funds around the world invested in and what's going to happen when all the toxic dross that they're invested in blows up, i.e. government debt. Because it's completely unsustainably priced.
2: Of course, that same regulator who told them or uh, told them not to invest in gold because it's a high risk investment are probably forcing them to invest in negative yield in European debt. Correct. 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 So you know, um, but that's regulators.
0: They just want you to guarantee the loss, basically.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, there's no, there's no, there's no explaining that. But that's just how the world works, yes. and I think we nice to live with that. So, tell us about Greta then. So, Greta or anti-Greta? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't realize she's got an auntie. That's the last thing the world needs. One one is surely enough. Yeah. So, so I,
2: I think for me, Greta Thunberg is the poster child of almost everything that's wrong with the world right now. You know, uh, rules and regulations are being put in place to force you to buy negative yielding bonds, for instance, because... It's your fiduciary duty um there's all sorts of rules and regulations being put in place and uh, many times and I think Ben Hunt from Epson Ontario I don't know if you read his stuff yeah it's great great stuff great so we'll
1: have to have him on I hope we can get him on at some point
2: he would be so good um in any case so he goes on about you know unelected officials like central banks now starting to impose ESG policies on everybody else um what's an ESG policy uh, that's uh, In- sustainability, uh, equity, sustainability, and... Uh,
1: environment, Environmental social governance or something like that. Yeah,
2: exactly. Oh, okay. yeah. that, you know. So they're starting to impose these things on on, on, on people and on fiduciaries um, because that is the
1: perceived wisdom of the day. Because it's hard that to that argue is right
0: against, one, basically.
1: Yeah. It's just well, it's 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 d- 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 it's it's trendy. It's virtue, virtue signaling. Yeah, exactly. It's all it's all of those things. So so in effect, what
2: the actual effect that's having in markets, it is driving money out of certain types of investments. Not because the seller thinks it's a bad investment, it's because the seller is not allowed to buy that investment. Mm. So that seller is forced to exit that investment. And and for a value investor, when you see forced selling, that's normally a that's normally the time you pick up your ears. Yeah, it's normally when you get the checkbook out. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It doesn't
0: sound like capitalism but no, right. people. It doesn't sound like free market capitalism at all, does it?
1: No, we, yeah, I don't think we. Paul, 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 where have you been for the last ten years? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, you try to run a, you try and run a, a, a regulated fund, even in South Africa. It's you know the rule book is thicker than uh, anything else you you read on a daily basis. So, um, so in any case, uh, the free market system is only that in name today. Uh, so getting back to the anti create the th- Thornburn portfolio. It's it's where people are being forced to sell things because of um, politically correctness, because of the common knowledge r- around certain things, um, which doesn't make sense, but that's what people are doing. Uh, and uh, that's how human beings act. They, they Human beings are herd animals and they all move together. And especially if somebody in in If somebody in a position of authority tells them to do something, they love just doing it. Um, That just comes naturally. Uh, So the the the, you know one of the first things that springs to mind is coal. I mean, coal mines are assets that generate very strong cash flows. Their clients need to buy that coal. They can't survive without the coal. They have to buy the coal. And these power plants, coal-fired power plants, despite The climate change activists are still going to be around for a fair amount of time. Uh, They have to buy this coal, but no new coal mines are being developed. I mean, financing for any sort of coal or, you know, that sort of um, uh, asset, uh, the finance is just not there anymore. So I think that coal mines today could be the tobacco stocks of 20 years ago.
1: It's, fun. it's funny you mention that because I'm thinking of setting up my own coal, coal-powered tobacco business. I'm thinking if I can get people smoking coal, we can, we can nail all of the different avenues available in, in investment. Yeah. The, re- the reality is because as, as a business, you, m- you may be having this too, Pete. We, we're, we're being, let's just say, more than gently encouraged to, as a firm to have an ESG policy and our ESG policies basically will invest basically in what the fuck we like. Thank you very much. Unless and, until, unless and until the government forces us to do otherwise through the legal system. But it is not surely the job of fund managers to dictate social policy. It's the job of politicians. That's why they're elected. And as a non-elected person, we ought to be able to avail ourselves of a, of a proper free market. So the idea of being coerced or forced into abandoning certain types of being prevented from in buying certain types of investment. Not because they're um, uh, well, be, be, for reasons of political incorrectness, I, it fills me with horror—complete horror. It does, but
2: then lies the opportunity. I, I think uh, if if investors are forced to sell those assets or not finance them at least, I mean, because banks in South are have are refusing to finance any coal mine. Mm. So guess what? No coal coal mines are being developed.
1: But that's just that's the business that the likes of China going to suck up because they they seem to have no qualms about building more of these damn things. So. Talk about unintended consequences. I mean, if Greta could spend a bit of time, you know, talking to the Chinese, I'd, you know, th- that would be that would be a nice documentary to see. You know, Greta Greta visits Beijing. Does she come out again? I doubt it.
2: I'm not sure handlers would uh, take it. <laughs> um, so 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 that would be like top of the list of uh, that sort of portfolio. And and I think anything that, you know outside outside the normal index. Um, you know, again, the guy, um, Murray Starr from Horizon Kinetics talks about a completeness portfolio where they buy everything that's not in an index, and then uh, that completes that can complete uh, a portfolio. Uh, so anything that's outside of an index, I think, that's where the opportunity is because the money is flowing away from active management, forcing active managers who, by definition, predominantly own non-index
1: stocks. But that surely requires a degree of patience amongst one investors that has to be well communicated because that 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 anti index or non index portfolio is inevitably going to spend some time out in the wilderness
2: it is and it's busy doing so and it has done now for quite a number of years and as i alluded to earlier i mean last year is a case in point where on non index exposure did half of what the index did mm. but the 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 returns we earned of 10 or 11% In isolation, if I had offered those returns to you at the start of the year, you'd have taken them.
1: When, if ever, do you think investors or the investment industry is going to start a debate about the merits, let's say, of having an absolute return mandate, i.e. a capital preservation objective, rather than simply an index relative mandate? Because it strikes me that the index relative mandate is irrelevant to every individual on the planet, the only people for whom it's relevant to the investment industry itself, who's competing against each other.
2: I'll tell you exactly when that's going to happen. It's going to happen when... When
1: the next bear market starts.
2: Exactly, yeah. Because then everyone's going to look at the index fund and say, hang on, but this thing has lost me X percent of money. Uh, I'm not in this game to lose money. I, you know, where's that absolute turn guy? Where's that, where's that fund now? Um, that's when it's going to happen. But in an environment where there's a bull market in index stocks and in... Quality stocks and in uh, those sort of companies, that it's not going to happen. Um, that is the nature of the beast. That's human nature. That's just how it works.
1: Because the the problem the problem is essentially that 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 in bull markets investors are relative relatively inclined, and in bear markets they're absolute return focused. But but you know that's not easy necessarily or even possible to identify in advance. It reminds me about, I think it was Will Rogers that says, "Well, you know, you buy stocks." Because they because they go up, and if they're not going up, well, you don't buy them. It's quite straightforward. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, it's very simple, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, 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 another area which we found quite useful is investing in the UK, which is uh, which is which over the past two years has uh, become quite a pariah. I think uh, with the pound being quite undervalued, um, I think that's another not useful non-index exposure into an economy which I think has a chance to thrive over the next five to ten years. Um, so you know that's another thing we'd look at. Uh, we, we we touched on gold stocks. Yeah. Another geographic area which is completely out of favor um, is Russia. Um, you know everybody loves to hate Russia, and I think there's some really good companies there trading at low multiples, um, which are completely outside of any index you'd, you'd, you'd even think about. Uh, so those sort of areas that, as value investors, we we tend to. We, we tend to move towards. Do you, do you own Gazprom? We do. Yeah, we do own Gazprom. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a stock on a, on a three or a four PE with an increasing dividend. And it is, uh, a, it is a provider of energy to basically the whole of Europe and possibly China in future. I mean, you know, they've got some big customers. Uh, do, you, do you
1: own spare SpareBank?
2: We own Spur Bank. Yeah, yeah. You know, a, a, a bank with a return in equity over twenty percent, um, trading just over book value. You know, you don't get that anywhere else.
1: At this rate, at this rate, your competitors will be taking your best ideas. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I hope they buy some <laughs> But what, what what about the? Uh, I suppose you've got foreign exchange risk from South Africa and obviously from Russia yeah. as well. Do you mitigate that, or how do you how do you plan for that?
2: So, so how we deal with the, with exchange rates is we uh, work on, you know, what the economists call purchasing power parity. We we calculate what we think the fair value of a currency is, and we build that into the valuation of the stock. So, if we buy Spur Bank and we think the ruble is twenty percent overvalued, you know, then you know, the stock needs to be a very, very undervalued before we start looking okay, at it. Okay, interesting. So we build that into it. Uh, and so one of our top holding our global fund right now is Tesco. And because it's undervalued, I wouldn't say Tesco is massively undervalued, but it, we regard it as being an undervalued stock, but we think the pound is quite undervalued. Yes. So the combination of undervalued stock plus an undervalued currency we think is a good one.
0: Interesting. Interesting. What do you think inflation is running at in South Africa at the moment? Well, the official number is around 4.5%. Really? Uh, and Actually. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. So, uh, the, you know, so it also depends. I mean, so uh, it depends on where you live and what you expect from the area in which you live. So if you want decent security, you've got to pay for that yourself, and that costs money. That goes up every year by more than inflation. Uh, you can't depend on the police. Uh, if you want decent schooling, you go private. You can't go to public schooling. Um, uh if you want uh, decent medical treatment, you've got to go private and you pay for that. And that goes up by more than inflation. So, you know, it depends on where you are in the economy and that sort of thing. Um, but it's, it is it is low. It is lower than it has been for a very long time.
1: Anything else about the process, the philosophy, the firm that you'd like to cover before we move to our, our media picks, uh, Pete? Oh
2: uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I do think uh, in, in terms of South Africa, which we were talking about just now, um, I think just to illustrate the sort of value that is available here right now, there's, there's maybe if I can talk about two stocks as an example. So there's a company called HCI, Hoskins Consolidated Investments, which is run, interesting enough, by ex-trade unionist, but he's a wonderful capital, capital allocator.
1: Which is really the secret sauce that all businesses require. Cap- good, good, good capital allocation.
2: Exactly. And and this guy is a is widely regarded, as one of the top capital allocators in the country. He has built up a portfolio of wonderful businesses, all acquired at good prices. The net asset value of that investment company which he runs has grown uh, far in excess of the underlying economy or even the OSHA index. Uh, yet today, that stock is available at almost a 60% discount to NAV. Wow. Uh, so so that's the type of thing as well, you know, investment trusts always trade at a discount to their net asset value, but 60% is, I, I would argue, excessive. Sure. Uh, and then, this, uh, you know, uh, as is his want, he has invested in two uh, non core assets, almost options. Uh, the one is a platinum exploration uh, business, which is on the verge of proving out its reserves. And as you know, platinum all of a sudden become quite popular. Platinum Palladium. Yes. It's worth a lot of money. And he also owns a, a portion of some blocks of uh, oil exploration blocks off the coast, uh, which have apparently um, come up with good reserve, good results in terms of the drilling. So <laughs> the, he, he does that sort of thing. Uh, and those are like options for the future. Uh, who knows? So it's it's you know so one is able to buy a well-run business run by a good capital allocator at a 60 percent discount to its net asset value and I would argue the intrinsic value is probably higher. That, that's that's typically what, what's happening and that's why I'm spending most of my attention on the South African market right now because I I do think that there's a lot of value here and for anybody brave enough to come out and have a look, I I'd be more than happy to take them around.
0: That's, that's a very kind offer. Was I right in saying you said two stocks? And that was was that one or did I miss oh, one?
2: Okay, yes. And the other one is a small cap um, plastics manufacturer. Um, sold a non core part of the business uh, a while ago. Paid a big special dividend. Still sits with around 400 million rand. 400 million would be about 20 million pounds of cash on the balance sheet. Uh, its core business earns around 60 million rand, which would be about 3 million pounds. So it's got earnings power of 60 million Rand, it's got cash of 400 million Rand, and the market cap of this business is 500 million Rand. So, you know, you're getting a pile of cash yeah. and you're paying less
1: than two PE for the rest of it. What's that company, Are you at liberty to identify it? <laughs> yeah, well, you
2: know, just bearing in mind that I own this company with funds, so I don't want to be accused, <laughs> but it's it's called, it's called a company called Bowler Metcalf. It's a very small company, five million Rand, as you can imagine, 25 million pound market caps, tiny company. Uh, and as you know, sm- uh, you know, values out of favour, small cap is out of favour, and small cap value is completely out of favour.
0: Sorry, I was just looking it up online and just transferring some money. Sorry, I was just. <laughs> <laughs> that that's fantastic.
1: So what? Are... How we laughed as Paul was wheeled off to the regulators in chains. Yes,
0: indeed.
2: No, as if yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would ever
1: do that.
2: I'm sure we've broken about 15 rules. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> well,
1: if you're not if you're not living on the edge, Pete, you're taking up too much room.
0: <laughs> What's the lifestyle like there for you? I, I understand you, you, you're you quite the sportsman.
1: Yeah,
2: so uh, Cape Town's got a fantastic outdoor lifestyle. Um, we're on the mountain, on the ocean, uh, and the lifestyle is great. Uh, I think security is an issue. We are living in a third world country with um, lots of poor people, so the, the security is an issue. But it's not something that, you know, as long as you look around and you're careful generally, then you're fine.
1: But to be fair, Pete, you could say the same thing about London these days, so, you know.
2: No, I mean, I've been hearing a lot of stuff coming out of London, which uh, which uh, probably uh, makes one want to be careful next time you come to London as well. Uh, you know, but if, if you go to countries like South Africa, in anywhere in the world, uh, I think it pays to be careful. And you need to be careful here as well. I mean, you'd be naive um, and not to be careful. But it's not something that inhibits your lifestyle. I mean, uh, tomorrow morning, I'm waking up and taking my back onto the mountain for a nice ride. I mean, that's just how we, that's just how it works.
0: But you're, you're, you're being a little bit modest here because you you do a bit more than that, don't you? You do Ironman competitions and, and, and other things. Tell us about your, tell us about that oh. and, and, and what they entail. Look, I was,
2: uh, you know, value investing is scary thing. So I, I like to also do
1: scary things. So, so you like, you like to bungee jump in razor blade factories just to have a bit of time off. Oh,
2: and and then and then I go back to the portfolio sort of thing, and I'm quite comfortable. <laughs> yeah. So, so every year I try and do something, something daunting at least. Um, so I've done Ironman, and I've done the uh, epic mountain bike race, which is like eight days of quite intense mountain biking. Comrades Marathon, which is a, a eighty-nine kilometer. Don't know how many miles that is. Probably fifty or sixty miles. Uh, um, marathon, that sort of thing. So every now and then, I I'd, I I'd, I'd do one of those things. Um, train for it and do it. That's just amazing. That's, That's I enjoy just it.
0: amazing. I mean, how 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 do you how does one even begin to train for that? Do you have like a, a like a personal trainer that that talks you through it, or do you, where do you start?
2: yeah so so for some of the some of those events i would i would sign up with a trainer and um train with a trainer and for others i i would just you know download a program off the internet I and mean, it is wonderful for that sort of thing and and just follow it i mean i'm not trying to win any of these things ever i'm just
0: trying to finish yeah them. brilliant
2: and it's actually surprising how finishable um these events actually are um you don't need to be a super athlete just
0: dedicated right
2: You you just gotta get out there every morning and slug away
1: for, you know, for a period of time. Yes. That sounds like value investing. Yeah, exactly.
0: But (laughs) it must I mean exercise like that. I mean, I I do long uh, you know, long runs and stuff like that. And I always think it's um it's a great way to come up with ideas, you know, it's just uh it's it's good in so many ways for your body, but it's also good for your mind as well
2: it is yeah uh,
0: that, that's the thing
2: also when you go for long runs you, you put in your airpods and you listen to podcasts yeah. and you listen to you know you listen to all these sort of things and or everything you know some sort of idea always germinates out of those discussions and podcasts and even when you just listen to music uh,
0: it, it just so sort of sets your mind free and you can think about things yes. um,
2: so i find that
0: incredibly useful fantastic just one, one last question, if I may, about your investing. I just want so you talked about Russia and you talked about the UK, and obviously you're, you're heavily involved in South Africa. But where else in the world catches your eye? Do you think, or, or do you have a more laser type focus and don't want to extend out because obviously you have to do quite a lot of research in the in, in the stocks that you're looking at? Yeah,
2: yeah. So it's so actually some research. So, so if I, if I look at our global fund right now, it is. The biggest exposures are basically to the UK, uh, to Russia, and to gold uh, stocks and physical gold and, and other precious metals. So those are three big areas. But then we own some 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 US stocks and some other stocks. We start to look at Turkey now. And we think Turkey is quite interesting. We haven't bought anything there yet, but uh, you know that place is also going through some interesting times. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting times that uncover um, good investments. So we're having a look at that now as well.
0: And what about the Far East? Would you go as far as there?
2: Um, we own one or two things in Japan. What, another, thing, another strategy we do in the fund is we buy um, a basket of net-net situation where stocks are trading at less than seven percent of the net current asset value. Um, and it's amazing how many of those stocks, when you just do a screen and, and we don't do any analysis, we just do a screen, uh, and make sure the companies are at least, uh, not bankrupt. Uh, and we buy those companies in a basket and uh, almost 80% of the companies that are in that basket come out of Japan. Mm. So it's, a, it's amazing how many of those sort of cheap stocks are in Japan, but we haven't done any in-depth research in Japan. yet.
0: Well, you've been extremely generous with your with your investment philosophy and your ideas, so you know thank you so much. It's been brilliant. Yeah, it's been great talking to you guys. So Tim media
1: picks.: um I, I warned Pete that we, we we might finish this way, so hopefully he's had a chance to prepare something.'ll I'll kick off to give him a bit extra time if, if that's required. so my my pick for this week is a film called "The Favorite," which I was watching the other night. We recorded. I think it was on Sky. Uh, great cast Olivia Colman Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz stranger looking almost unrecognisable it's about Queen Anne and it's a historical drama which by all accounts because I then read about it afterwards seems to be based largely on fact so it's not just kind of wild fantasy and it's basically just a power a power tussle between Queen Anne in the early 18th century Lady Sarah Churchill and a new servant girl Abigail who was previously a lady but fell from grace the reasons that viewers will find when they watch the film uh, absolutely cracking film, uh, shot beautifully. Um, and the last thing I would I would dangle in front of people uh, a Metascore on Metacritic, which is my go to place for film reviews apart from IMDb. Metascore of ninety, which is just huge. Wow. So uh, that that great great entertainment. That's a film called The Favorite, which was which came out in twenty eighteen. And I think uh, uh, Olivia Com actually won an Oscar for her, for her performance. She did in that,
0: indeed, which was yeah, brilliant. Great. Thanks, Tim. Peter, what... Nothing better than a bit of history.
1: Yes. You can't, you can't go wrong with a bit of history. You can't go wrong with a bit of period drama and costumes. I mean, it may, may soon be that the, the entire UK economy will be purely period costume dramas and nothing else.
2: <laughs> there does seem to be a lot of that stuff coming up. <laughs> so so, so my, my, my pick, and I have to be honest here, yeah, um, upfront disclosure that I haven't finished the movie yet. I've only watched about three quarters. I fell asleep last night. Um. But uh, the movie is called Ford versus Ferrari. Oh uh, yes, yes. I think for me, just the, the the clash of cultures between the two, and the way the Ford grouping approached the whole thing is like typically American, and the way the Ferrari grouping dealt with it is typically Italian. Uh, and I think uh,
1: at the end of the day, I think today. Uh, so, so just uh, to 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 dwell to dwell on that point was that basically was that the Americans uh, carpet bombing from fifty thousand feet and the Italians running away quickly?
2: Yeah, the Americans carpet bombing from fifty thousand feet, but uh, by way of a committee deciding who's going to carpet bomb where. <laughs> so, and, and the Italians running away, but also the Italians just sticking to what they're doing and not doing anything different and just doing what they're doing in a very high-quality way.
1: I don't think – this isn't the first time we've heard this film yeah. recommended, is it, Paul? We've no. heard – I think someone else has, has recommended this one. Yes.
2: And so, so I'm not sure – it probably is – you know, being a Hollywood movie, it's probably going to end up with Ford uh, beating the pants off Ferrari in, in the race at the end of the day. Uh, but I think the, the point I want to make is if you look at where Ford are today and where Ferrari are today, um, I think Ferrari is a more valuable company today than Ford is.
1: Well, I don't know how many times Ferrari has gone bankrupt.
2: meantime but today it is uh it's it's seen as quite a quite a quite a valuable asset
0: by some yes it was um ken lewis that's it ken lewis who recommended that and oh right the gold man the gold man man. man. yes indeed that's yeah he he, we had we had a guest on who basically was into racing and he recommended it.
2: okay um well i'm not surprised at all for me it was just a different cultural cultural aspects yeah uh,
0: yeah it's great actually I'm really glad you've mentioned that film because I said at the time um, to Ken that I I haven't seen it yet but I saw the the trailer for it and I wasn't quite sure about the accent that uh, Christian Bale was doing but subsequently found out he's actually English anyway, so he
1: should be. I think he's Welsh. He's Welsh. Welsh yes, I think you
0: Yeah, because it is a very interesting
2: English accent that he is that he's using, that
0: he's putting on. Yes, he's put he's putting on an accent. So I I can have to watch it just for that because I'm I'm, yeah. I'm really intrigued. But I think he's a great actor. Yeah. You know, even if it, even if the accent wasn't quite right, which I'm sure it sure it is in the film so, so
2: then I have finished that I, I haven't finished that so I'm looking forward to finishing Grim. that uh, but the other, the other piece of media it's not a movie but the p- other piece of media which I thought was a classic and will stay a classic for a very long oh. time was of course Ricky Gervais' opening speech oh, come
0: on yeah. excellent
2: love it yeah watch that over and over oh it's great it's
0: just great to go back to isn't it and just see all those reactions fantastic yeah. So uh,
1: he he should he should be promoted to being like a, U, a, a permanent roaming UN goodwill ambassador, but primarily for the states.
0: <laughs> and I don't know if you've got Netflix there, but um, yeah, we do, yeah yes. but yes. if you've seen his series Afterlife, it's very good. Actually, it's very yeah, good. Very good. It's very, very well very written. Good. So and apparently, yeah. yeah. So it's that is actually good and worth seeing.
2: And it's also not bad. Uh, dipping into the office every now and then as well.
0: Yes, yes, that's good. That's good too. <laughs> Well, mine is a a Storyville BBC documentary that was done um,
1: on... BBC, BBC Paul, we'll allow it this once. Come
0: on. It's it's such a good subject area. And perhaps if you don't want to watch this documentary, I think you should read around the subject. It's uh, The Gene Revolution Changing Human Nature. And it's about the technology called CRISPR. And this... This te- I don't know if you've heard of this technology, but basically there is a, a way of um, editing people's genetic code. So there's a, uh, a molecule, I believe, called Cas9, and it goes in and it just edits your DNA. And they've found they can basically use this on, in humans now, which means that you can decide the genetic makeup of your baby. And it's just amazing. So designer,
1: designer babies, designer babies, then, basically.
0: Um, I mean, we knew the technology was coming. Um, you know, in two thousand, the the cost of of sequencing the the genome was was the DNA was like a billion dollars, and now it's like about one hundred and twenty dollars. So it's it, if you see where the technologies come, but they actually have the ability to do this now, and it's just it could be the biggest revolution we've seen in anything. Forget the internet, forget digital. This this could change, well, can and will change the human race. And I don't know how you're going to keep a lid on it, really. So, it, there's so many questions that come from this now. But uh, I, it's a very good uh, documentary that explores the technology, but it also explores some of the minds behind you know where it might go so i think it's it's worth if you can't get hold of it obviously in other countries i I would definitely just look on the internet for some some articles about it because it is fascinating and it could be potentially an area to invest in
2: yes i, I do think the health area of biotechnology and, and and those sort of things uh, human nature is such that the incentives are so strong to go down a road there which can lead to fantastic developments, good and bad, um, that is going to happen. There's, I have no doubt in my mind that that, that that sort of thing will happen.
0: One of the fascinating things that came from it, if you don't decide not to watch it but just want a bit of information about it, is that despite this ability to, say, eradicate sickle cell anemia um, by genetic editing, it also turns out that if you do that, People who have sickle cell anemia also have a resistance to malaria. So you never really know what you're doing when you're making these edits and how it's gonna turn out. It's like it's yeah. like the the rule of unintended consequences. So unintended consequences exactly.
1: Have, have you read a have you read a short story by Ray Bradbury called The Sound of Thunder?
0: No, but we're gonna we're gonna to have to get hold of it now, you've said it.
1: It's it, it's it's well I'm gonna it's a huge spoiler on it. So if you haven't read it, then then basically avoid the next thirty seconds. <laughs> okay. but, it, but, but if you have read it, you'll you'll relate to it. So basically, it's <laughs> Hang a short on, story I, I by. I haven't read it. So you're gonna ruined, <laughs> well, you're gonna, well yeah, I'm going to ruin it. I'm going to ruin it for you anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's just the price. The price of you're a the price team. of the price of media fame for you, Paul. <laughs> but basically, the, so the premise is um, that they, they they work out time travel, and so they work out a way whereby people can go back in time to uh, to, to 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 hunt to do big game hunting of dinosaurs uh, But, but in, in the like the Triassic Jurassic era rather than bringing them to today and um, but everyone involved in this process says, by the way you have to stay to stick on the path because all of the dinosaurs that you end up shooting we've we've been back in time we know they're going to die shortly afterwards anyway of natural causes or an avalanche or whatever so you know so you' all you're going to do is kill a, a dinosaur that's going to die anyway because uh, but but uh, under no account should you step off the path because the, the path has been is like sort of like it's it's pure, it's clear, it's clean, and et cetera, et cetera, hermetically sealed, all the rest. Anyhow, they go back into this bunch of people go back in time and they, they do the dinosaur shooting, but somebody just happens to sort of fall off the path and they, they get back on. But um, anyway, they think no, no damage has been done. They go back into the, the future and everything's changed. And it transpires that the, the guy who fell off the path crushed a butterfly. Accidentally crushed a butterfly while he was off this path. And the death of that butterfly cascaded through time and ultimately changed everything about the future. And it's a bit like chaos, like an early version of chaos theory that, you know. That's, you know a,
2: that's a retelling of the butterfly thing.
1: Exactly. So the butterfly effect is, but in time rather than in space. But it's a fabulous, it's a fabulous short story that I've now completely ruined for people. So sorry about that. <laughs>
0: yes. Thank, thanks for that. Yes, you sound very sorry as well. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been you've been so generous with all your ideas. It's just absolutely amazing. And have a fantastic ride tomorrow.
1: And please, the doc- so so if people if people want to get in touch with you, yes, Pete, point, how, how can Thank they you. do that?
2: Well, I, I'm I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Pietviljoun. P i e t v i l j o e n, and my email is Pete, Piet at
1: recm. dot Right, and that's your company. Recm is your company.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll put links to all of those in the show notes. So that's superb. Brilliant. Enjoy your bike ride tomorrow. And Thank the door is always open for you if you want to come back on the show. If you have you know, a big idea that you want to tell us about, we'd love to hear from you. So please, please come back on.
1: And we got through without any energy blackouts either. It's been a, re- a result.
0: Yes, we should really explain that. Um, so yes, yeah, so apparently they they're just turning the power off. What, what's that all about?
2: So, so it's actually it's actually very well. It's one of the few things that work here is the blackout schedule.
1: So <laughs> you, you get a, so it's, like, it's like what would what would have happened if Jeremy Corbyn had been elected? Exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly. Today's blackouts will be <laughs> eight to ten. Your power goes off, and eight o'clock you can set your watch by the power goes off. But tonight it's it stayed on some... because so you They knew the we were they knew
1: we were recording. They, they knew we, we were recording.
0: Brilliant, brilliant stuff. <laughs> <laughs> been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you, thank you. Thanks, Pete. Speak soon. hope all the best. Cheerio. Bye bye.
0: Thank you to Tim Price for ruining that book. I really.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a short story, Paul. <laughs> yes. get, right. get over yourself so brilliant
0: as always thank you so much and uh, my pleasure and we'll catch you next time thanks so much for listening and goodbye this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor